Well, um, I'm glad you found your way uh, back. We haven't met together for eight months, I think. Has it been about that? Candy, you think about eight months? <laughs> it, it seemed like it. We're going to be in Hosea tonight. Uh, and let me just tell you that next week, Lord willing, we'll finish this book of Hosea. Now, there are several chapters to go, but I'm going to take them together. It's not normally my habit, but I think they will fit better together. So we'll finish the series next week. And then the following week, which would be July 7th, here's where you come in. I'm going to start a new series, kind of a weird one, uh, called uh, Super Duper Bible Verses. So there you have it, Super Duper Bible Verses. And so uh, what I want to do is take just a key verse at a time. It could be uh, one, and here's where you come in. I'd like you to submit to me. You can email, text, just uh, scribble it out on a piece of paper. What verse or verses of scripture would you like for us to spend time on? It could be one that's your life verse or that is very meaningful to you in some way or very confusing to you. It could be a controversial verse of scripture, anything like that. And I know it's dangerous when you just take one verse because the risk of taking the text out of context is pretty great. So this is not typically my style, but I hope uh, maybe you'll trust me a little bit. I promise to handle the context of whatever verse we're looking at so we don't just look at the verse. We'll look at who wrote it and who did he write it to and what was the uh, biblical context and the geographical context and all the rest. And so uh, that's what we'll do for a while. We'll see how it goes. If you decide uh, it isn't good, I feel fairly certain you will let me know, <laughs> and I will respond accordingly. But there are just a number of passages of Scripture I'm dying personally to look at. I have questions about them myself, and I want the opportunity to study them a little more in depth. So that's what I'll do. I'll take one verse, spend a whole week studying it, and then share with you uh, hopefully what might be helpful to you. So be thinking about any verse or passage of scripture that you would like for us to develop. We'll start doing that July 7th, Lord willing. So tonight we're back in Hosea and we have been there for quite some time. This is the theme of the book, God's unfailing love to unfaithful people. The concept is so counterintuitive that God would respond to us in faithfulness in spite of our unfaithfulness that this wonderfully gracious God gave us an illustration of something we would otherwise not be able to assimilate. And so he gave us an illustration of remarkable faithfulness in the, spite of un, in the face of unfaithfulness by giving us a marriage, an actual marriage involving a man named Hosea and a woman named Gomer. And uh, it's likely that Gomer was, was not a loose woman when they married, but that she became unfaithful in the course of the marriage. She took on a number of alternative partners to her husband. It caused him great hurt anger, and public humiliation. The normal anticipated response, you and I would say, would have been for Hosea to divorce himself from her, to leave and who knows, give her a piece of his mind. But we don't see that played out in the early chapters of Hosea. We see him continuing to provide for her, even when she didn't acknowledge that he was the source of her supply. 
we see him on one occasion actually bidding for his woman who is being offered as a slave on an auction block. Her husband himself redeems her, takes her home, and offers her the opportunity to remain faithful to the marital covenant. It's just an overwhelming demonstration of this very thing. Unfailing love in the face of unfaithfulness. And then we transitioned from that episode, which, by the way, interestingly, we don't know how it turned out. Nowhere in the book of Hosea or anywhere else in the Bible are we told if the marriage lasted, did they have, you know, how many children did they have and all the, we, we don't know these things. And I think it's because God just decided it's not necessary for us to know it. The transition from that marriage, however, is to God's weddedness with Israel. He entered into covenant with Israel, and Israel proved herself to be just as uh, unfaithful as was Hosea's wife. And we see depicted God's uh, inexplicable, uh, unconditional um, love and faithfulness to Israel in spite of her spiritual uh, harlotry. So that's kind of where we are. There are consequences, nonetheless, for sin. One is not that uh, Almighty God will ever leave us or forsake us, but one of the consequences when God's people sin is that they bring upon themselves all kinds of trouble. That's sort of the context of Hosea chapter 8, so let's get involved in taking a look at it now. Put the trumpet to your lips. It was a shofar. I should have brought one in tonight. I didn't think about it. It's a ram's horn. It's blown in that day, even today, to summon the people for a holy convocation or to warn about uh, an approaching enemy. And so I think that's the case here. Put the trumpet to your lips. Get ready. Like an eagle, the enemy comes against the house of the Lord. Who's the enemy? In the immediate historical context, it was a mighty empire called Assyria. Assyria was coming against Israel. And so uh, we're given the reason why. Because they have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. So you can interpret world events in terms of uh, politics or economics those things, uh, but probably that's not going to be the most precise interpretation. Behind a world upheaval, instability, and cataclysm is always human sin. That's the root problem. And so God takes Hosea as his spokesman to clearly state that. The Assyrians are coming. Blow the trumpet. Get ready for this Assyrian onslaught. And why? Because they, Israel, have transgressed my covenant and rebelled against my law. So uh, God gives this image, you see, of a, a ravenous, ferocious eagle uh, hovering over ancient Israel. Again, politics, economics have nothing to do with it, uh, nor is, uh, are those things the uh, answer for what's going on today? I can't emphasize enough. I'm so uh, distressed, not by the day, but by the way we Christians are dealing with the day. We're so consumed 
with the superficial issues of the day, the politics of it all, uh, we're missing the real issue. It's human sin. And uh, uh, there's no more of it in the Democratic Party than there is in the Republican Party. It's a human dilemma. I, I beg you, please remember your calling. It is, it is not to renovate the political world uh, or, or the economic world except as a collateral effect of regeneration. Folks, when a person in the domain of darkness is moved by God's grace to the a kingdom of the beloved son, everything changes in that person's point of view. That person suddenly has a different idea of marriage, a different idea of abortion, a different idea about Israel and all the rest. And I'm afraid we're moving into such an aggressive debate, kind of a siege mentality. We're seeing the boogeyman under every rock. We're giving the evil one much more credit than he deserves. He's just a created being for crying out loud. Limits are set upon him by Almighty God, who we know personally. I didn't say we shouldn't be aware and involved. I'm just saying we're so consumed by the superficial manifestation of sin, we're getting distracted from the underlying sin problem for which we have a solution. And we're forfeiting our platform to share the solution, which is the gospel message, because we're, we're, we're ready to take a stand on all collateral issues in the public arena. So we're getting, we're getting identified with certain political persuasions and issues instead of an identification with the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, uh, don't do it. You don't get grace for those battles. Here we see the right diagnosis in ancient Israel. It had nothing to do with politics or government. Those were just symptomatic. This is happening, Israel, because they have transgressed my covenant. Folks, welcome to modern-day America. And we have the... Boy, it's awfully quiet in here. Now, I'll tell you why. It's easier to get angry at the headlines and what you perceive to be going on than to go across the street, embrace your neighbor as a friend with a view towards sharing the gospel. The problem is not with those out there, it's with us here. Do you mind me hurting your feelings? When was the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? It's a rhetorical question. I think I gave you the illustration one time. Now, by the way, when you get older and grayer and whiter, you, you get the privilege to just spout off. <laughs> so I am. There was someone in my neighborhood who a few months ago had a sign. Actually, it was four signs on their uh, lawn. And it represented not a candidate, but an ideology I, I don't hold to at all. It's uh, unbiblical. It's not Christian. It's, and my first response was to be quite upset. Good night. I pay homeowners fees here. Someone should regulate this. I shouldn't, when I'm walking my dog, have to be offended by the signs on this person's lawn and all the rest. And I thought, you know what? When, when I see the resident of that home outside, I'm going to tell them, hey, you don't have a right to uh, subject me to that stuff when I'm walking down the block. And I'm so glad I didn't do that. Because I did see the homeowner one day. I was with my dog. 
and we made a, a conversation um, about life in general. I did not get a chance to share the gospel with that person, but the opportunity is now there. We know each other by name, and I thought, what if I won the battle to get them to remove their goofball sign, but I so offended them in the process that they wouldn't give me a hearing for the gospel? Folks, it's easier to get mad. I even, I think I told you, I debated coming out one night under cover of darkness and removing the signs. These are fleshly things for Christ. I didn't say we shouldn't speak up, and I didn't say we should be doormats. All I'm saying is, as our beloved brother John used to say, keep the main thing the main thing. The main thing is Jesus and his interest in saving lost people so that lost people think differently. I think we're really losing in my opinion, our credibility in so doing so because we're, we're, getting, we're getting distracted by too many collateral issues which are not the issue. So here's the diagnosis. And so it says, like an eagle, the enemy is coming against the house of the Lord. What's that? Well, you'll see in the context, it's not a building. It's the people whom God redeemed. It's ancient Israel here. It's the people with whom he entered into covenant and they're referred to as the house of the Lord. And the enemy is coming against them. Why? Because they have transgressed his covenant. That's what it says. So there are many covenants here in the Old Testament. God made a covenant with uh, Adam. Adam broke it. God made a covenant with Abraham and his seed. Uh, they broke it. <laughs> God made a covenant with Israel. Israel Broke it. I'm beginning to see a pattern, are you? Uh, 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 something in us is wrong, folks. We have an inclination to break covenant with our maker. That's a big problem. We are covenant breakers, which tells me we don't have any hope of ever being at peace with God except for his grace. And he manifested his grace in that he has offered to us a new covenant. And the new covenant, this is so marvelous, was announced way in advance of when it actually came to fruition. It was announced way back in Jeremiah chapter 31. It's a fascinating, magnificent passage. I'd like to read it to you. It's Jeremiah 31, verse 31 and on. Listen. Behold, days are coming. So this that we're reading about was future from the perspective of Jeremiah. Days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Uh, since I'm being offensive to you, let me even get more offensive. No covenant of the Bible is made with anyone but Jewish people, not one including the new covenant. It's universal in its application, so Gentiles could get in on it, but it was given first with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Why am I emphasizing that? Because people are into this God's through with Israel thing. What are you talking about? There is no covenant in the Bible, including the new covenant, that isn't primarily a concerning Israel. And by extension, those who get under the new covenant by faith. 
So this covenant is made with the house of Israel, house of Judah. And it says, I'm going to make it. It's not like the covenant which I made with their fathers. Not like the first covenant. In the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. Can you see again the figure of marriage, covenant marriage? You see it violated with um, Gomer and Hosea. It's violated with Israel and God. And so God says, I was a husband to them. They broke that covenant. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days. Future, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. See, God's law was inscribed on tablets of stone. Nothing wrong with God's law. They're magnificent. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Really, really good. But they were inscribed not on people's hearts, but on tablets of stone. And therefore, um, uh, people could not comply with them. There's something in the human heart that makes it hard. And so, so there was an obstacle between God's commandments and our will to do it. So God says, no, under the new covenant, I will put my law within them. Can you imagine somehow God said, I'm going to implant my uh, will and ways inside of them. And, and, and he says, I'll write it, and I'll be their God, and they'll be my people. That's the new covenant, which we see fulfilled through the blood of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. So this is the grace of God. You see it manifested in a small way through Hosea, and now in an ultimate way through Almighty God towards you and I. Covenant breakers, God said, I'll make a new covenant. And the new covenant will never be uh, uh, broken uh, for this reason. God's uh, covenant with us will never be broken because it is based upon his faithfulness, not ours. That's the new covenant in Jesus' blood. So, so now we, we trust God uh, to be faithful to his covenant. We don't trust in our own righteousness, our own religious behavior, our own uh, obedience to a set of rules and regulations because we break them. Now our confidence and faith is in Messiah Jesus and his finished work for us. That is a new and better covenant. So Israel transgressed. Israel sinned. Uh, they broke the law of God, though it was good. They violated the covenant, though though it was good and it was holy. The problem was not with the law, it was, it was with Israel. And here's the sad reality of it all. They didn't even realize it. In fact, they thought they were okay with God the whole time. This is, this is such a terrible thing. Look, Hosea 8, uh, 2, they uh, cry out to me, my God, we of Israel know you. Uh, folks, uh, our neighborhoods are full of people who think uh, they know God sufficiently uh, to be okay with him. Our neighborhoods are filled with people who are raised in the church but don't go to church. It's almost like an unreached mission field. Those who, like ancient Israel, think <laughs> they have an adequate uh, legitimate relationship with God, but who don't at all. Our job is to reach them. We're not going to reach them with a political agenda. It, it doesn't save. 
No candidate saves, no philosophy saves, no ideology saves. Can I remind you, Jesus saves. I have a neighbor, and we've gotten to know each other. And on an occasion, I got a chance to share the gospel message with him. He told me about his experience. He was raised in a Baptist church. Has a Bible and all the rest. But there's been no relationship, no walk with the Lord in years and years. I don't know if this is the right perspective, but we become friends. And I told him the other day, look, we're friends, right? Uh, He said, yeah. I said, well, then I want to tell you something. It would mean a lot to me if you would come to church with me on Sunday. I'm just going to lay a guilt trip on you. How could we be friends if you don't do what would be meaningful to me? Why don't you just do it for me? They came. And I thought to myself, and they had a marvelous experience and are desirous of coming again. Folks, what if I staked out my ground with that neighbor on the manifold issues that we are so prone to get upset about today? Would they have come to church? Would they hear the gospel message? Would they be around other believers? Would they have a chance to be regenerated uh, in their souls? Folks, please don't miss the point. The only people in the entire universe who could tell people about Jesus are Christians. Other people can represent all kinds of points of views on this, that, and the other thing. This is the message we have been entrusted with. Please, let's not forfeit the platform. So ancient Israel, like many today in America, uh, laid claim to a relationship with God. My God, we of Israel know you, but they didn't. They were deluded. In fact, it says in verse 3, Israel has rejected the good. The enemy will pursue him. The good is God. The good are the things he provides. That's the good life. The good life is to be in a personal relationship with the creator. Israel rejected it, and the result of it was, as it says, the enemy will pursue him. In fact, here's what they did. They've set up kings, but not by me. Uh, Can you hear that? It's almost as if God is agonizing. They set up kings, but not by me. They've appointed princes, but I didn't know it. In other words, they didn't consult God. With with their silver and gold, they've made idols for themselves that they might be cut off. Folks, um, the hypocrisy of it all. Israel said, "We, we know God, yet they ignored him. They broke his covenant. They rebelled against his law. They rejected what is good. And they chose leaders without consulting God. So someone put it this way. See if you can agree with this. When a nation makes its own kings, it makes its own destruction. Welcome to modern day America. To choose leaders without the direction of God is not only sinful, it's downright foolish. Those who follow their own wisdom in the choice of their leaders inevitably get what they deserve. Welcome to modern day America. Through due political process, there are leaders that have been chosen. Okay. Okay, America, you got who you wanted. God was not consulted. 
His choice of leaders was not even considered as with ancient Israel, so too with modern day America. And God says in response in verse five, he's rejected your calf, O Samaria. Samaria was the capital of Israel in ancient, before Jerusalem in ancient days, Samaria. And there it was kind of like a religious center. And so they would, they would sacrifice and even worship molten calves at Samaria. And so it says, he's rejected your calf, O Samaria, saying, my anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? Folks, here's an actual uh, depiction. This is uh, an ancient calf idol that dates thousands of years. It dates back to actually to the time of Hosea. It was found in Samaria. What's wrong with us, folks, that we would reject almighty God and worship something we ourselves made. It, it, it defies, I mean, it defies <laughs> logic. In fact, here's what, what God says in the next verse. For from Israel is even this. Can you hear the agony in the voice of a heavenly husband who entered into a kind of marital covenant with her wayward bride, Israel, just as Hosea did with Gomer. Can you hear the agony from Israel is even this? A craftsman made it, so it is not God. Just logic. Folks, if you make the thing, it cannot be God to you. You are God to it. To worship something you outrank is sheer and utter foolishness. And God is saying, even that is what Israel is guilty of. A craftsman made it, therefore it's not God. Surely the calf of Samaria will be broken to pieces. That which I showed you was found um, underground after centuries of neglect and absolutely uselessness. Can you see the fundamental problem in, inside? It's not political. I think we're missing it. I think the evil one is really getting us distracted from our calling. We've been entrusted with the gospel message. Before you share it, you have to make a way for it. And the way to make a way for it is befriend people around you. Befriend. I had another neighbor. Now they moved away. But I don't think I had anything to do with it. But... I, they live right next door and you know we waved at each other and all this stuff but I didn't know who they are we didn't have any uh, interaction and I'm not a bold evangelist by no means I, I didn't really know how to get things started but I did pray and one day I might have shared this with you they had a little Toyota it was in their driveway and the trunk was open and it was kind of raining and I thought well that's odd why, why is the trunk of their car left open in the rain? So I went to their house and I knocked on the door and uh, they opened it and, and I said, is everything okay? They said, yeah, why? I said, well, because the, you know, the trunk in your car is open. I was just wondering if everything is all right. Oh, thank you so much. We just, you know, we forgot to do it. That little goofy thing opened up the whole door. I got to share the gospel with them. You know, yeah, I, I, how, are, how long have you been here? Uh, how long have you been here? What do you do? What do you do? Et cetera, et cetera. And I asked them 
my 40 questions, uh, 40 words, I stated to them. I said, let me tell you about the greatest thing that ever happened to me. It's when I realized that God was willing to forgive all my sins through the death of his son Jesus on the cross. Boom, look at that, 30 seconds. And they just looked at me like I was from another planet. And I said to them, what do you think? What's your religious background? They told me it's a different religious background. They have a knowledge of Jesus, but not a, not a personal relationship. And we had a, a, a good conversation then, and I was able to build on it many times uh, uh, thereafter. Uh, folks, what if I staked out my ground on something else? I mean, it was Christmas time, and they had stuff on their, on their lawns. It was all kinds of stuff, and it had nothing to do with Jesus. I mean, nothing. It had cartoon characters, you know, these blow-ups and stuff. What in the world does that have to do with Christmas, the birth of the, of the Savior? I was, I was getting riled up about it. I could sense that I was on the verge, if the opportunity arose, I was on the verge of saying, hey, what does Snoopy have to do, you know, with, I mean, Mickey Mouse, what? What is, well, I didn't do it. Uh, Not because I was so disciplined. I I didn't get the opportunity to do it. And I'm so glad because I could have won the battle. I got to state my case about Snoopy and Santa or Pluto, whoever was out there. Um, And I may never have gotten the opportunity to share the gospel. Can you see what I'm getting at? Do you mind me telling you we are increasingly becoming angry? We're indicting people. We're indicting people in our own denomination prematurely. We're giving no one a fair shake. We're seeing the boogeyman on, around every corner. Come on, guys. How about an endearing spirit? How about kindness? How about a smile? How about some pre-evangelistic strategy to make the way for evangelism? How about that? doesn't have to be aggressive evangelism, a street evangelism. It's not for everybody. How about some bridge building, some friendship? Why can't we Christians be the best in the world at making friends with non-Christians? And in the context of it, why can't we take the opportunity to, to explain to them the one who's made a difference in our life? Folks, uh, um, I'm not responsible for what's happening out there. And really can't do a thing about it. I'm responsible for representing Jesus Christ. So are you. Israel failed miserably. And in some measure, so too is the church. So too is the church. So people see us to be ready to rapid fire unload our opinions about everything. They see us fighting at the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, that did a lot of good. The media loved that. Just because you have an opinion doesn't mean you have to state it. We have the gospel. We're ambassadors for Christ. When was the last time you told anyone about Jesus? Forgive me for being so harsh, but why not? If everyone in this room who lays claim to the Lord Jesus shared the gospel with one person this next week, we'd have more impact than kicking and screaming 
against the inevitable godless decline of the nation, um, political placards on the lawn and all this other kind of stuff, that's not going to get it done, folks. It's not going to get it done. Uh, Jesus is the Savior. Nobody else is. I hope we're learning from ancient Israel. Well, anyway, um, uh, God laments that from Israel is even this. And here's what he says is going to happen. Verse 7. They sow the wind and they reap the whirlwind. The standing grain has no heads. It yields no grain. Should it yield, strangers would swallow it up. In other words, Israel was of no value to God, bearing no fruit. They sow the wind, they reap the whirlwind. It's a biblical principle. As ye sow, so shall ye reap. There's a consequence for behaviors. You can see this in the the New Testament as well. Here's quite a well-known verse. I think you're familiar uh, with it. Do not be deceived. God uh, cannot be mocked. A man reaps what what he sows. That's what God said to ancient Israel. I believe that's what he's saying to the modern-day church. What seed are we sowing? What gospel seed are we sowing? Now, pick up the pace here because I'm overdoing it. Verse 8, Israel is is swallowed up. They're now among the nations like a vessel in in which no one delights. That was then. It's also now. Israel is swallowed up. Good night. If you see what's going on in the Middle East and the world community... And, and this, 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 this verse, uh, Israel is swapped. They're among the nations like a vessel in which no one delights. Wow, the tide is turning against Israel like never before. A recent poll was done of uh, American evangelicals, and it indicated this generation uh, has almost no interest in Israel whatsoever. And if they have an opinion on Israel, it's that Israel is the oppressor, the aggressor. They have, they're racist. They have an apartheid state. Now this, uh, in contrast to the older generation, their parents and grandparents, who predominantly were very supportive of Israel, seeing God's plan for Israel in the Bible. We're really drifting. Not to mention the international community Holy Toledo, verse 8, which played out in Hosea's day, I think is playing out in our day as well. Verse 9, here's what Israel did then in response. They've gone to Assyria like a wild donkey all alone. Uh, Ephraim has hired lovers. They made uh, international alliances just as Israel is seeking to do today. It's not all bad except if you do it in exchange for your... uh, alliance with the God who, who is willing to be in a covenant relationship with you. So Israel's government, of course, its government is new now. Israel is looking in all the wrong places for what Israel needs. Instead of going to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Israel is looking to the international community, especially the United States, to do for it what only its God can do. And so it says in verse 10, even though they hire allies among the nations, now I will gather them up and they will begin to diminish because of the burden of the king of princes. In the context, it, the king of princes is a reference to the king of Assyria. I think ultimately we can see an application to Satan, the prince of darkness. And so because of 
Israel's interest then, and I think even now, of finding allies among the nations while rejecting Almighty God, it says here, I'm going to gather them up. They will begin to diminish. I think present-day Israel is going to diminish militarily, economically, even in terms of population until the ultimate time of the outpouring of God's wrath, known as the time of Jacob's trouble or the great tribulation period, which I think we're approaching uh, rapidly. So verse 11, since Ephraim has multiplied altars for sin, they become altars for sinning. (laughs) So there was no lack of religion in Israel then and now, big temples and altars and so on and so forth, but none of it sanctioned by Almighty God. So the more they went to these altars to sort of find remission of sin, the more they actually sinned because they rejected the sin bearer, who is Jesus, the Messiah. And why is God repulsed about all this religious activity? It's for this reason. We looked at this um, some time ago in Hosea. For I desired uh, mercy. Uh, a better translation actually is uh, loving kindness and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. As with Hosea, he wanted a wife who would be loyal and faithful to him. So to God is looking for a bride who would be loyal and faithful to him. I desire mercy. The word is chesed, chesed. It means covenant love. It's the kind of love that God shows to us through Christ Jesus, and he's saying, please show that in return to me. Israel has not done it. And so all of Israel's, in some cases, beautiful religious worship is like a stench to almighty God. And so it says in verse 12, though I wrote for him, Look at this, 10,000 precepts of my law. They're regarded as a strange thing. What a shame. 10,000 precepts is a metaphor. It's to indicate the completeness with which God has revealed to Israel his will and his ways in Scripture. 10,000 precepts means I gave you my word, complete, as a rule book for life. You don't have to guess about uh, what I think of you and Uh, my holiness and what my plans are for you. And yet, in spite of the fact that I gave you uh, 10,000 precepts of my law, they're regarded as a strange thing. You want to hear a sad thing? For me, it is. I can't hardly have a conversation with my people about biblical things because they have no knowledge of biblical things. 10,000 precepts entrusted, the oracles of God entrusted to the Jews first are like a strange thing. Most of my people don't even look at it, don't read it, know nothing, nothing about it. You know what's sad? So too are many of our church people. Maybe not here, but I'm talking about Christianity in general. It is amazing to me how little firsthand experience so many of our brothers and sisters have in the word of God. They don't know it. It's amazing to me. As with ancient Israel, so too with the modern day church. Now, folks, when a person considers the Bible to be a strange thing, he's in a heap of trouble. Welcome to modern day America. 
Verse 13, as for my sacrificial gifts, they sacrifice uh, the flesh and eat of it, but the Lord has taken no delight in them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish them for their sins. They will return to Egypt. Literally? No. They didn't return to Egypt. They returned to the kind of bondage they had when in Egypt. And that's what happens even to a Christian today who's on the run from God. It's not that you return to your pre-salvation day in the sense that you lost it. It's as if you're back in bondage to the same stuff that held you captive even before knowing Christ. And this terrible almost lament in the last verse of the text, for Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities, but I will send a fire on its cities that it may consume its palatial dwellings. <laughs> Is it possible to actually forget God? No. Uh, nobody can forget God, but we can neglect God. That's what ancient, Is no, ancient and modern Israel is doing. I hope we don't do that. Uh, so almost everyone says today they believe in God, and many of those are neglecting God. Folks, God by definition is the one who has mastery over our lives, our money, our words, our thoughts, the use of our time. Israel claimed some knowledge of God, but she was kind of practical atheists, and so too could we be today. And so that's what God did, but God didn't create us so that we would put him on the shelf in our lives. He really wants, just like Hosea, he wanted intimacy with his bride. He wanted closeness. He wanted the two to become one. And God offered to us that uh, sad illustration to bear his heart before us and tell us, that's what I'm after. I'm after a love relationship. I'm after intimacy. I want you to be faithful to me uh, knowing I will always remain faithful to you. And that's why God said, I'm going to burn down their palaces and fortified cities. They were not inherently wrong, but they were symbols of Israel's self-sufficiency. I'll build palaces and my own fortifications, and therefore I don't need Almighty God. And I hope we aren't looking in all the wrong places for the things only that Jesus can provide, even as American Christians. I hope we're looking to Jesus more than ever before. So as judgment, God said, I will tear down those things which you have relied upon. And here we'll end, not on a good note, but uh, I think that's what's happening in America today. We're forced to wonder what's going on. I think it's this. I think that a God still willing to save, still bent on redemption, is bringing America to its knees. Folks, things are not working out for us. We're not leading out in the world community anymore. There's upheaval the likes of which in my, in my years living here in the United States, I've never, seen, I've never seen anything like it. I've never seen such lack of restraint. People are being killed every day and for no good reason. That's the, that's the scary part. Look, someone wants to hold you up and you resist and they shoot you. I see the logic of it. Someone shoots you for no reason. Ah, what's that all about? That's an indication of us losing restraint and of God removing his hand of restraint on America. Why? To destroy America? Oh, no, he could have, been, he could have done that a long time ago. 
I think as with ancient Israel, so too with modern America. It's to give us a chance to make sure our confidence is placed in the right place. It's in Almighty God. Our nation under God has not acted like it. We have forgotten him, and he will not be forgotten. And therefore, he is allowing us to see the results of our independent, rebellious, autonomous spirit. Life without God, what does it look like? Welcome to modern-day America. When you strike out <laughs> against arms of government that God has put in place to protect the citizenry, wow. When I grew up, you wouldn't dare think of saying anything disrespectful to a police officer. Today, it's open season on police officers. What's that an indication of? The failure of a political party? No, it's much worse than that. It's an indication of the fact that uh, sinful members of all political parties are neglecting Almighty God, just as Hosea told us about with ancient Israel in chapter 8, so too with modern-day America today. So what's our job? Um, Turn up the burner on devotion to Christ. There is no hope apart from him. Now, some people are much more optimistic than me, and they're expecting a turnaround in America and in the world. I don't see it. I'm sorry. I don't think I'm pessimistic. I just see a drift that really corresponds with what the scriptures tell us is going to happen. But I don't want to fall into despair. I want something to do. I want something to do. But I don't want to do the wrong thing. (laughs) I want to do the right thing. What's the right thing? Don't even worry about sharing the gospel. Make friends. Just make friends. Make friends with unsaved people. In the course of the friendship, you'll do life sharing. It just happens. And you'll share your life in Christ. Are you willing to pray that in the next week God would give you a chance to extend yourself to somebody? America is a mission field. Holy Toledo. And there is growing openness to the gospel because an increasing number of people, they become so cynical and lost uh, hope and Uh, faith and trust in all the institutions, including the church. Why? So many churchmen have fallen into immorality, scandals almost every day. Someone of notoriety has committed some crazy nutso sin. But all of that is different than introducing someone to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with being a Baptist or anything like that. In fact, I don't invite people to church right away. No way. I try to invite them to be a friend. Let's just make friends. And then I try as a friend to tell them about what's most important to me as a friend. And then I try to manipulate them into coming into church by saying, how could you call yourself my friend if you don't even come to church? It actually worked. <laughs> Folks, we have a lot. People ask me all the time, Stuart, we got to do something. We got to do something. Do what? 
Do what? What do you mean, do something? Campaign, protest, burn down buildings, take over the Capitol? Go ahead if you want to. That's not the Great Commission, however. That's not it. It's just easier than the Great Commission. The Great Commission means you risk friendships. It means you risk being persecuted. I mean, anger, anger gives a... Uh, a show of strength, but it's really a show of weakness, anger is. The show of strength is to go boldly uh, with the gospel and share it and leave the results with God. That's our position of strength. Would you do me a favor? Would you pray for me that God would give me an opportunity to talk to someone about the Lord this week? I really would like to. And if God answers your prayer, I'll tell you next week. And I will do the same for you. And if I remember next week, I might say, hey, would anyone like to share an experience they had over this past week in which they got to have a conversation about the Lord Jesus with someone? Why don't we do that? Are you willing to, to, to do that? Let's, let's, let's see if God will come through for us. Let's see if he'll open up the opportunity. And if next week we have just a whole bunch of people sharing their experiences in sharing Jesus with someone and we don't get to the lesson, no problem. Let's, we'll skip it. Let's just skip it. Let's just see how we do as ambassadors for Christ this week. We could do it. Are you willing? You willing to? But Lord Jesus, there you go. We're, we're going to... Uh, it's a little scary. We're going we're gonna to look to you. Would you just, would you give each of us an opportunity to say something about you to somebody? Oh, to lead someone to you would be a great privilege, but, but maybe if we just get started. Can you just give us an opportunity to say something to somebody about you this week? I pray that for myself, and I pray that for every Christian here gathered together tonight oh God in heaven and if we run into things we can't deal with okay we'll learn how to better represent you would you put us in the process oh God of taking an active role in representing you every person seems to be unashamed about his or her agenda and they're all lies but we have been entrusted with truth would you give us a spirit of holy boldness and willingness to have eyes that see the harvest is ready. So, oh God in heaven, um, use us this next week to talk to somebody about you and then to come back next week to encourage one another with episodes in which we were able by your grace to do that. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.